Welcome to the Side Hustle Project, a podcast where we explore the nitty-gritty details behind what it takes to start and grow a profitable side hustle. I'm your host, Ryan Robinson. In this podcast, I'm bringing you interviews with entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, CEOs, investors, and people just like you who are building and profiting from interesting side hustles. In today's episode, we're talking to Purnima Vija Shankar, a founding engineer at Mint, the personal finance app that go on to be acquired by Intuit in 2009 for $170 million. As one of the company's first engineers, Purnima had a huge influence on building the product and growing it with her college friend and founder, Aaron Patzer. As the daughter of an engineer, Purnima began learning to code at a very young age and was an early adopter of the internet back when it was brand new. During her time working at Mint, Purnima was one of just a small number of women who were vocal in the tech world. She started speaking, advocating for women in tech, and in 2007, she started her blog called Femgineer. Her blog began as a side project, starting with the goal of sharing lessons learned helping to build Mint, capturing all of her experiences as a woman in tech, and offering up actionable educational content for her readers that wanted to become developers themselves. Now, Femgineer has grown into so much more. Free resources, courses, books, videos, and even her own podcast called Build. In this episode, Pranima and I are talking about what it was like making the decision to join Mint back when it was just a risky idea her college friend shared with her. We're exploring the early days of Femgineer and how Pranima built her blog into a business on the side of her work at Mint and continued growing it while working on several other projects over the years. We cover how Pranima's learned to deal with the stresses of being an entrepreneur, her strategies for recovering from creative burnout, landing high-value speaking engagements, and so much more. As always, you can find everything we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at ryrob.com slash podcast. That's spelled R-Y-R-O-B dot com slash podcast. Let's get into today's interview with Purnima Vijashankar. Purnima, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me, Ryan. All right. So my first question for you is um, one that I've been asking all of my guests recently. I'm curious to hear what book are you reading right now or what's been your favorite recently? Oh, gosh. I just finished this book called Paris Red, and it it was about a muse to an artist in 1865 uh, and kind of her life and you know, affair with this artist. Um, so that was my last read. This week, I actually don't have anything. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was a good summer read. Wow. How did you come across <laughs> that one? <laughs> uh, at the library, of course. And I, in general, just like to read on my, my spare time historical fiction. So I picked it up because it looked kind of interesting and offbeat. And, uh, and it's, it's the author, it's, it's obviously historical fiction. So the author has kind of pieced together what she thinks the experience was like in that era between, you know, these two people and others. So, uh, was, was mostly fascinated at how one goes about, uh, writing, writing such a book when it's not, you know, a hundred percent factual, but a lot of it is based on it and how she had to do her research. Yeah, that's an interesting challenge. And so you you said you picked this up at the library? Were you the only one yep. there? <laughs> oh, no, I wasn't. I mean, there's a lot of people in my neighborhood actually go to the library a lot. And it's funny. Um, I don't know if this is like a California thing or like a Northern California thing, but at least the two last two neighborhoods I've lived in, the uh, libraries have been very active. And a lot of folks go there, I think for the free Wi-Fi primarily. Um, but they also have a pretty good collection of, you know, other mixed media 
So I like to I like to frequent mine. So, all right, Pranima, uh before you get out into the workforce, um, became a founding engineer at Mint, started Femgineer, did all these things, what were you like as a kid? I, as a kid, so my parents will tell you I was very well behaved, and then they'll probably tell you my teenage years hit, and <laughs> it, it became a little uh, crazy for them. <laughs> But I think overall, I was I was a pretty pretty good kid in that I um, I followed the the rules as much as I needed to. I wouldn't say I followed them a hundred percent, but you know as much as I needed to. Uh, and I think you know my some people would say, oh, she was just like Miss Know It All kind of class um, or like teacher's pet sort of person. <laughs> um, my view actually of myself growing up as a kid was. Uh, I didn't feel like I fit in in a lot of places, and you know, while I had well, I had like a fair number of friends and I was outgoing, um, I did spend a fair amount of time sort of in between, you know, two or three worlds. You know, one was the world of like adults because I was the oldest, and then I used to hang out with a lot of neighbors um, who didn't have kids because I thought, oh, you know, that's a it's like a safe group to hang out with because sometimes kids can be mean, uh, and then. <laughs> And then, um, and also because I was the only child for about six years, and then my brother came along, um, but it just meant I had to, you know, figure out a way to entertain myself. And my parents were, uh, I think, constantly working, uh, so it was kind of that adult world. And then, you know, the kid world. Uh, play. I played outside a lot back when kids played outside a lot, <laughs> and uh, and then I think the third the third world was more of a, you know, discovering things on my own. So. I did a lot of reading. I was a very, very early adopter of the internet. So probably as I transitioned from like elementary school to middle school and high school, I went from playing outside a lot uh, to some, you know, outside and then a lot of online, whether it was video games or reading or talking to people on instant messenger or doing research for school. So I, I just had my hands in like a lot of stuff. And, and I think my parents biggest uh, concern with me was that I was sort of all over the place and they um, they could never get me to like take a nap. So if anytime I was <laughs> taking a nap, it meant that I was really sick. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of the same as I am now, I think. So you mentioned getting into the internet early, which I think is fascinating. Um, when did your sort of interest in technology expand beyond just say the internet? Oh, that's always been there. I mean, the history is my my dad was uh, in grad school, so he's an electrical engineer. He was in grad school, and when he was in grad school, I was like two, three, four at the time. And because my parents were immigrants and couldn't afford daycare or, or any sort of childcare, I would go with my dad um, to a lot of his classes. And so I was introduced to technology really early. And then, you know, as he went on to work in semiconductors and stuff like that, I just always knew about computers. And in fact, my mom, uh, who's an accountant, she had a electronic typewriter and I thought it was really cool. So I started to teach myself how to type one summer. Um, so I was always very, I think, accustomed to technology and never had any, you know, issues with it, uh, it just, it was like a, another toy for me. Did you have a clear drive towards, say, wanting to work in the tech world after school then too? Absolutely not. 
it's very uh, it's very ironic that I actually ended up in technology. So my my whole goal, because I saw what my dad did, and I thought, I mean, it's cool, like the products are cool, but I just thought it was a really boring job because he sat in a cubicle all day. <laughs> and to me, I just wanted something more dynamic. You know, like I said, I was outside, I was inside, I was meeting people, I was like writing, I was doing all these things. So I, I really needed a job where I could do a lot of different things. And as funny as it sounds, I thought that that was being an attorney because I could get up and speak. I could read. I could meet clients. I could, you know, work on you know, social or any sort of different issues, right? So to me, like, that was going to be my dream job. And it wasn't until I got to college and somebody explained to me what an attorney does <laughs> that I quickly became disheartened and... And that moment was kind of exploring other alternatives. Um, and, you know, my dad actually said, well, why don't you why don't you think about taking a computer science class? Because, you know, even if you don't like it or if it's not for you, you're going to have like a job after school, which is also important. Uh, so and, and he knew that I was kind of interested in technology. Um, and it actually ended up being like a pretty good fit for me. And I, I did that. I also did electrical engineering, but, but computer science just seemed, uh, like after I graduated, I decided to kind of double down and, and focus only on computer science. So that, that actually ended up being a good fit for me. And what was your first job then after you got out of school? So my first job was an, I was an R and D engineer and I was building, um, you know, kind of licensed software for chip manufacturers. So like the Intel's, hmm. the AMD's of the world, because I had this double background in like double engineering, uh, double major intellectual engineering and computer science. So I thought, okay, this is like a great uh, channel. And keep in mind, this was like post dot com bubble. So this was 2004. Mm -hmm. And I think at that point, I um, was really worried, okay, are there going to be any jobs at all? So I had gotten a few offers and this one seemed like the most promising and it just so happened to be in Silicon Valley, which is where I wanted to be. Uh, so I kind of packed my bags and, and headed over. Um, but that was my first job. All right. Well, fast forwarding a little bit then, you eventually found yourself as a founding engineer at Mint, the personal finance app. How did that one even come about? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, kind of a happy series of events. So I, when I first moved to the Valley, I knew it was the land of startups and all these really cool young companies and of course, like, you know, bigger companies as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I always thought, okay, you know what, it's going to be like five years before I join a startup because I, I don't even know how to build a product from scratch. I wouldn't know the first thing about leading a team or you know, how to even ship a like software product. So the first two years were really just like me getting my bearings. And in that, in that process, uh, my buddy, Aaron Patzer from college, uh, started working on an idea and he was in Austin at the time. And we, he started sharing his idea with me and I convinced him that he needed to move to Silicon Valley because that's really where he was going to be able to find capital and, it, engineers and it, like basically everything that you would expect in 2004, 2005, 2006, right? I wouldn't mm -hmm. give this advice to anybody today, but back then that was like my sound advice to him. So he ended up moving, you know, starting this company, talking to me about it, 
for about a year and I really started to like the concept, kind of pushed him. Uh, I remember once on a, on a road trip saying like this, you know, what's the name of the company? And he said it was Money Intelligence, which I thought mm-hmm. was just an awful name. <laughs> and, you know, he, he pushed back and said like come up with something better. So I thought for about, I think, 30 to 60 seconds and came up with Mint. And he, he totally loved it. I totally loved it. And I felt like after that moment, I just became way more invested in it. So I started kind of casually helping him on it. And that init- and that kind of eventually snowballed into me joining uh, more full time. And uh, yeah, that like, you know, the rest is sort of history. So I never would have imagined my career as that early on being involved with a startup. Yeah. And especially one that would go on to do such big things. <laughs> yeah. And at, was, at uh, the time, at the time you made the decision to work at Mint, was, was that actually like, did it feel like a big risk for you to go out and like take a leap with this early startup or, or did it feel like, you know, the ducks were kind of lining up already? No, well, so I was in a very funny situation. I, uh, so I had known about Mint. I was working on the side. And then um, right before that, I was actually working towards a master's at Stanford in, in CS, um, just on a part-time basis while I, was, I had my real full-time job. And <laughs> then uh, my full-time job ended up firing me, uh, which basically cut the funding for Stanford and gave me a nice like severance package of three months. Um, and like the, re- the main reason like I never worked for Mint from the very beginning was like, you know, I just, I didn't have the capital to quit. And mm-hmm. I was constantly worried because I had student loans, I had rent, I had a new car payment. So I always told Aaron, like, I can work on this on the side. And then if you get funding, we can talk about it. Um, and then, you know, it just happened that I got laid off. So I was like, wow, this, this sure thing that I thought I was going to be at isn't sure anymore. And then there's this other thing where I may not get paid for a very long time. Um, But what I do know is I have some money, you know, I have savings, I now have this severance package. So I could, I could play around for like, you know, two to three months and see what happens. So that was, that was my risk. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't bet at all, but I could take kind of a small risk. So, you know, I struck a deal with Aaron. Uh, I think it was something like I'll work for a month and just pay me like something really minimal, you know, pay me enough to cover rent. And that will be enough to, to make sure that I um, can have a longer run runway. Uh, and that was kind of, you know, both of us admitting that there's a risk here. So, so we did that. And then in that like month to month and a half period, he was successful at raising a seed round of funding. So then I had um, a, st- a steady a steady paycheck in that, like, you know, as, as steady as it's going to be um, and enough to kind of cover my basic expenses. Um, and so then I joined. But for me, you know, at the time, I felt like everything was a risk. I felt like a big company, a startup, there were there were basically no guarantees in life. And I just had to be really smart about how I spent my time and how I kept my skills um, honed and how I networked with people, like how I continued to look for opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's, and that's kind of how I've always been about risk. Uh, I would say I'm probably less inclined to take the bigger risks now just because, 
you know, as you get older, you get a little wiser, but you also have like commitments and obligations. So I'm definitely not as a fly by the seat of my pants as I was <laughs> maybe as like a 24 year old, uh, which is, which is a good thing. But, um, but at the same time, I think I still evaluate kind of overall risk, you know, in these three buckets, like, am I going to learn? Is this going to be a, a worthwhile opportunity? And am I going to have freedom to kind of do the things that I want? I like that. And I think, yeah, it was, it was also good timing for you to do such a thing. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was extremely good timing. And I joke about this now because so many people come and, uh, I feel bad when they're, as they get older and they're like, Oh, you know, I really wish I'd done this at like 22 or 23 or 24. And yeah, it's true. I mean, if you have student loans and stuff like that, it's certainly a challenge, but it's still easier in terms of time because, man, I had so much energy then. Like, you know, working, uh, I don't know, ridiculous number of hours a day, 12, 12 to 16 hours a day, kind of getting by. I'm lucky today if I can get, you know, eight to 10 hours on, before somebody interrupts me. Uh, you know, so I think it's, it's just a different um, dynamic. But it, it's also really good because, you know, much like when you're a kid and you learn a language, when you're when you're that young and you're in a startup or that kind of environment, you learn very very quickly uh, and you learn to adapt, and that I think is is very interesting. And so during your time while you were working at Mint, you started working on a side project, Femgineer, which um, I did. which started as a blog first, right? Yes, yeah, it was you know it was a very again um, <laughs> fortuitous thing. I think I should only do things that are sort of ran like by chance. So I, um, you know, I mentioned as a kid, I had a lot of projects and one of my, my dreams was to always do a lot of writing, be a writer, be an author. And I think around middle school, I had an opportunity to have one of my fiction, my sci-fi, um, works published, but then I ended up moving and missed that. So it was always like this, ah, like my parents, you know, damn them and like getting in the way of my dreams. But I wanted to get back into writing. And along that time, I met some pretty cool people, Noah Kagan, Dave McClure, and and they were involved with Mint. And they kept telling me, well, if you want to write, just, you know, start a blog. And so I thought, okay, all these people are like starting this thing called a blog. How hard could it be? And yeah, that's what inspired me to start Femgineer <laughs> as a blog. And what was the goal in starting the blog? Did you have any sort of like objectives in mind or was it just sort of like, you know, sharing lessons learned, experiences, things like that? Yeah, I had no grand plan. I was just thinking I'm going to, well, actually, I didn't think anybody would read it. So I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm just going to chronicle my experiences, you know, being an engineer, working on products maybe some stuff that's not even related to either. Like I have a few short stories on there. So it's it really just, you know, my site and my ramblings. And um, it was funny because I think like the first year or two, it was just me writing whatever it is that I felt like writing. And then as, as it got going, I would go to events or conferences and people would know that I had written it. And, uh, and that's when I was like, Oh no, people are reading this. I better like take this more seriously. <laughs> so, um, so it was funny. Cause a lot of people asked me about like, you know, how did you find your voice and stuff like that? I was like, I didn't, mm-hmm. I just, I just put stuff out there and it wasn't until I realized I had an audience that I felt the need to be a little bit more directed, uh, in my writing. Mm-hmm. 
And now, like, when I'm looking at Femgineer now, like, you have tons of free resources. You know, you have books, paid courses, programs, speaking engagements. Did you ever sort of predict that it would grow into something like that? No. I, again, I always envisioned this as like, oh, this is just going to be a blog and we'll see where it goes. It's my, my it's like my nice little extension of, of who I am and the things that I work on. Um, never, never thought of actually making it into a company. And it was, um, it was very much a decision late, like seven years later, you know, it wasn't until about 2014, like the end of 2013 that I even considered it. So between, uh, 2007 and 2013, uh, so about five years. Um, yeah, I just was doing whatever. So what made you make the decision then to sort of like shift gears, get into doing things like courses, education, thought leadership? Uh, a lot of that was a combination of things. So I started speaking because I thought it was important for me to spread the word about what I was working on. So one of my early talks that I gave at a local code camp um, was for Mint. And I was just talking about my experience, like building the prototype, launching and scaling it. So it was really just a, hey, like this is what I'm working on. You know, th- we were talking internally about how we needed to recruit more engineers, how it'd be cool to have more customers. And nobody else on the team, except for Aaron, the CEO, um, was actively like going out into the community. So I thought, you know, I have like public speaking experience from high school. I feel comfortable doing it. Why don't I just do it at a couple local events and see where it goes? Uh, so I started, I started doing that. And then it had kind of a snowball effect uh, around the time that we got acquired, where I, right after acquisition, a lot of people saw I had a couple engagements before, saw that I had done um, a fair amount of writing, and started to reach out and say, hey, it would be great if you would come here and speak, and come here and speak. And, and so that, it just became a, a very um, nice extension of work that I was already doing, and that's that's when a lot of the floodgates um, started to, to open. And I think if, for me, I was like, oh, well, this is this is great. And I started to see a lot of the benefits coming back, you know, in terms of recruiting, in terms of you know personal benefits for me, um, but also benefits in terms of like changing the industry and being, you know, one of a few women at the time who were technical and speaking. And now there's many more, still not enough, but kind of, you know, priming that. Um, and so that's, that's really why I started to do it more and more. And then I guess at, at what point did you officially leave Mint? It was after the acquisition, correct? Yeah, it was, it was about a few months after the acquisition. So the actual acquisition kind of unofficially, I think happened towards the end of September 09. And then I left in January of, um, 2010 to so about three, four months after the acquisition. And why did you make that decision? Uh, it was very hard. <laughs> and I, I think, imagine. you know, I had been, yeah, it, I mean, this was like a group that I had been working with for about three and a half, almost four years. And um, I had had been seen it all, you know, I was there from the ground floor. And for me, I think on a more personal level, it was um, less about Mint and more about the new company 
And I just was having a really hard time wrapping my head around how I was going to um, deal with kind of the day-to-day of being in a bigger organization, of uh, navigating all of that. I mean, I had worked at a bigger organization before, but I didn't like it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, it was kind of like... I, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm now officially a startup person and, uh, and it, it took a little bit of that realization. And so I decided, you know, uh, I'm just going to leave. I, I had an idea. I wasn't hundred percent committed to it yet, but I, I wanted to give myself like a year of space because I also had been pretty much working nonstop since graduation. You know, I literally graduated from college and then two days later I had an internship that lasted four months and then right after that I got my full-time job. So I felt like I had really never had a a break um, where I could just explore. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to give myself that break and and so I was like, okay, you know, this is a good time. Now the company is in a, a place where I can take off and not feel like I'm leaving people in a lurch. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I decided to, to go. <laughs> so you take a little time, recharge the batteries. Um, did you have a plan for what you wanted to do after you came back or did you sort of just come land and then figure it out? Yeah. So I wish I could tell you, I had this amazing year where I like traveled all over the world <laughs> or like took time off and just relax. But no, knowing me, I just, I, uh, I went right back in and I think a couple of days after I got even more excited about my new idea and I started to go um, pretty full steam on it by myself initially for about three, four months. Uh, then I had a co-founder and then I got really, really itchy to launch. So I started building about mid-2010, launched towards the end of 2010 um, you know, started fundraising and that whole kind of cycle began all over again, mm-hmm. uh, with, with busy being my second startup. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, in hindsight, I probably should have taken more time off, but I just kind of went right back in again. <laughs> and so one topic I know you've done some speaking about is burnout. How do yes. you feel like <laughs> creative burnout has sort of played a role in your career? Well, this is how, this is me like not mm-hmm. actually like taking time off in between projects, just kind of going from project to project. And, you know, part of it is because I, I love that state of flow and it is, you know, people talk about it, it's one form of happiness. And so I'm kind of looking for that. And then when I get into it, I get in so deep that I don't even realize I'm, that I'm tired and that I need to be taking time off. I need to be recharging. Uh, and in my younger years, it's it was way easier because it was just like, well, I can just bounce back the next day, right? Um, but as I've gotten older, it's gotten harder. So um, yeah, to answer to answer your question, I think the challenge has been being aware of when those moments are coming up, uh, even even when there's like minor signs, even when it's like, oh, I'm sleep deprived, or oh, I haven't, um, you know, really had a time to decompress or I just like snapped at somebody, (laughs) there's probably something going on. So I've gotten, I've gotten better about that. And I think in the last couple of years, I've come to recognize that, um, giving myself more of the space actually means that I get to enjoy those projects more. And 
also not doubting that I can get back into that state of flow. I think, I think early on in your career, you worry, you're like, oh my gosh, if I leave this project, like, will I come back or, you know, will somehow all the, uh, intelligence that I have like evaporate, you know, this is like a lot of, a lot of founders say this when they go from being a technical person to not, to not necessarily non-technical, but doing more business stuff. They're like, oh my gosh, will I ever be able to code again? You know, it's like, it's actually like riding a bike. It's going to come back. So you don't need to worry about that. But because of it, they're like, I can't take time off or I can't do this other thing or I'm really worried about it. So, um, so burnout's kind of the same way where you worry, you're like, if I, if I leave this project for like a day or two, you know, will it die or like somebody else will launch or, so you kind of have to, kind of have to get okay with just letting it sit on your computer or in your, you know, laptop or whatever and walking away and then coming back to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think awareness is, is number one. Like when you start to see those little signs, as you were saying, you know, being, being sleep deprived, um, snapping at people, things like that. Do you feel like you've been able to come up with sort of your own tool set for, for dealing with burnout or the early signs of it rather? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that it's something you can ever quote unquote solve. Um, as a creative myself, you know, like I, I feel like I go in phases, right. And, and I'm curious to hear if you have any sort of tools for, you know, reversing the clock on burnout once it begins kicking in. I have a couple. I mean, I now have a pretty uh, committed yoga practice. So hmm. that's good for me. But I have to admit, I think, you know, the best person for my burnout has actually been my husband. Uh, because it's easy when you're alone to just keep working. But when you have somebody else to kind of hold you accountable and be like, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. And I'm not <laughs> saying that to be selfish. I'm just saying that as like, maybe you should take some time off or like, here's a gift certificate to get a massage, you know, or like, <laughs> let me make you dinner. And you're like, oh, OK, these are nice like hints. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I think honestly, yeah, the, the strongest in my case has been having a partner uh, who can recognize it. And, and you know, I do the same probably not as often because he's more relaxed than I am, but just, you know, recognizing like when each person needs to take time away from a project uh, and get some R&R. &R. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's very helpful. Um, you know, now actually I do a lot of CTO coaching with other people. And I think the, the number one thing I often tell them is I, I like to do this thing called a calendar audit. And I, I say, like, just pull up your calendar. You know, it doesn't matter, Google, iCal, whatever. And show me where you have just empty space. You know, where is there sort of empty space? And if there is no empty space, and, and sleep does not count, uh, and, like, showers <laughs> don't count, and transit time doesn't count, right? And if there's really, you know, never any blocks where it's, like, an hour or two uh, or more, then that's a clear indication that you're not giving yourself just rest. You're not giving your brain enough rest. So that's a very easy way to audit. Um, Cause a lot of people think, Oh, well, yeah, it's, you know, I get plenty of time off. I uh, read or listen to a podcast on my commute. It's like actually a commute can be really stressful. So, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't really count. And sometimes depending on like the level of intensity of your exercise or your hobbies, that still may or may not, you know, count. So I just mean totally unstructured time. Like for me, we started this call by talking about the library, right? Like going to the library, that's that's totally unstructured time. I could spend mm -hmm. 
you know, 15 minutes or 50 minutes or five hours there. Um, but it's giving myself the space to do that. So Pranima, I want to shift gears a little bit now over to some of my frequently asked questions and I've designed them to be intentionally short on my end. Your answers do not need to be equally as so. Sounds good. Do you have any particular strategies or pieces of advice for how to get your first 100 subscribers, leads, or potential customers? Uh, you know, I've had most, so like, I guess for, for readers and subscribers, that has come pretty organically, um, to me. So it's, it's, I really feel like it's about consistency. So if you keep if you keep publishing content, if you find some networks, you know, or resources like a medium um, or other places to also put out your material, then I feel like that's a good place to to start getting you know your first five or ten followers. Uh, and then it's keeping up that consistency because you know you do it once, people think, oh well, that was great. You do it twice, people are like, oh okay, another post. But you do it like three, four, five, six times, then people take you more seriously and they think, okay, this is somebody I want to follow. So I think it's really important above all else that you have that consistent practice. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, depending on what it is you're doing, whether, like you said, a blog, customers, et cetera, you do need to take the time to figure out where they are at and meet them halfway, right? You can't expect people to automatically discover you because there's 7 billion people on the planet that are all worth discovering. So you have to kind of reach out and cultivate that relationship. And depending on like the product or service you're offering, it could vary. You know, like for a lot of my readers, I cultivate the relationship primarily through email. Uh, for a lot of the people that I coach, it's through, uh, you know, video calls and meetings and conferences. Uh, and for like, you know, my sponsor for my, for my web show, um, in my podcast, I make it a point to talk to them once a week and do FaceTime a couple times a month. Uh, and so it, it, it depends, you know. Um, but yeah, a lot of that is you doing the work consistently, whether or not you even have a customer or reader or whatnot, and then explaining to them what that work is, meeting them halfway, and then continuing to cultivate that relationship longer term. Um, and then also like, you know, pushing them a little bit to help you spread the word, uh, I think. So to me, I don't, I don't like to say like, oh, you know, get on Twitter and follow 10 people. <laughs> like there's a lot of different tactics that you can do. And it all depends on like, what's the coolest tool or social network or whatever. But above, above, above all else, I feel like these are the four things. It's, it's the consistent work. It's the meet them halfway. It's keep the relationship going. And then it's ask for more, you know, help or have them spread the word for you. I love that. I love that. So what would you say, and this is with Femgeneer in particular, what would you say has been your most difficult challenge growing the business? I think, you know, it's funny. Um, the challenge that I experienced this year was I really wanted to do things high touch. Uh, I mean, I have products like the book or like the two books that I have, but the courses that I have are meant to be taught in a real time uh, situation. So people log on and we teach the video courses and there's interaction. And the challenge that I ran into as we started to hit like 
40, 50 students in a course was I, there's one of me and even I had other instructors, but still it felt like there's a level of breakdown where we're not as connected to people. Uh, and so that, that became a challenge for me because I didn't, I didn't want to just make a self-study program. You know, I really did want to have a relationship with my students. Um, you know, if not a hundred percent, that at least 50% of them. And I found that that was just getting harder and harder to do. Uh, and so I actively have been trying to figure out how can I balance out the, um, trying to, trying to, you know, reach out to all these people and offer them kind of a high touch experience but remove myself from that equation and, and be okay with it. And how are you doing that? Uh, I haven't figured it out yet. I think, I think the, the piece that I'm experimenting with in the near future is training my substitutes, you know, training my substitutes to be um, better than me, you know, if not as, as good. Uh, and also have some differentiation, like they're, they're good at things that I'm not good at. And then letting people know that um, they're still going to get, you know, somebody that is worthwhile to learn from and is going to deliver like, you know, high quality. So, so that's been the approach. And then uh, this has been harder, but a lesson that I've been focusing on this year is honestly saying no to stuff uh, <laughs> because it's like, okay, if I, if I aim for 50, then that 51st person or that 52nd person, you know, I'm not there yet. I haven't figured it out for, for those two people. I've got to focus on the first 50. So I've had to say no to a lot of opportunities this year and be okay with it um, because I'm still trying to figure out the model. And I've had to turn, um, like, I've, like turned off certain products and stepped away from it and said like, you know, these just don't make sense to devote any more energy to, um, as well as projects. So, all right, Purnima, this is my last question for you. What's been the best investment you've ever made in the context of growing your business? And this could be in the form of time, money, online tools, products, services, or otherwise. Yeah, I, I have this rule with myself that every year, I mean, before it used to be like a certain portion of my income, you know, 10% or something else. And, um, as your income grows, it can't necessarily grow linearly. So it's, you know, it's obviously changed, but I have this rule that I need to invest in educating myself once a year. And that can be in the form of attending a conference or a class, uh, or just like something where I'm going to either get a new skill or form new contacts. And I feel like that investment has been uh, really good because it ends up paying you know me back somehow, uh, and it also kind of forces me to get back into that state of mind of being a student and like I don't know everything, I don't have the answers, and I need to learn from other people. Mm-hmm. So this year uh, I attended Crafton Conference, uh, the conference held by ConvertKit in Boise, Idaho. So Nathan Berry is the founder of that. Uh, so I attended that conference and then I had, um, one other conference, smaller conference that I attended. And then for fun, I decided this summer to take a French class. It was like an eight week French class. Um, but yeah, I, and then in previous years I've done some stuff like Ramit Sethi's, uh, online courses and, uh, like a few others, but 
and then way back, I think I did like a sales training because I was really bad at sales. So I, I think the idea is like keep investing in yourself. The, the key though is you can go overboard, right? You can see these people that buy like 10 different programs um, and don't go through any of them or kind of complete, you know, some portion. So, so my rule is like not only do I invest, but I need to take and apply at least, you know, 5 to 10% of it. And if I do that, then that's like a success for me. You, you can't expect to apply a hundred percent and chances are you're going to do it over time. Um, but yeah, that I think has been really, um, really good. And it, it also helps you keep your skills, I think, sharp so that you don't worry about, am I still relevant or not? Awesome. All right. Well, Pranima, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you tell everyone listening here today where they can go and learn more about you and everything you're up to? Yeah. So I'm usually on Twitter. They can just message me directly uh, at Pornima, and then they can check out my site, femgineer.com. All right. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much again. It was wonderful. If you enjoyed this episode of the Side Hustle Project, I would love your support. Head on over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating. And as always, you can catch every episode of the Side Hustle Project on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.